Good morning. Welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. When I was approximately uh, 11 years old, I lived in a small New Jersey town along the Atlantic Ocean. One day, I'm playing baseball with my classmates and... For those of you who don't understand baseball, I'll use the language that everyone will understand. I am playing catcher, or as it's known in Canada as the backstop. The ball is thrown to me, and one of my classmates is rounding third base and slides into home plate. I tag him out. He throws a fist at me. I throw a fist at him. He calls me a dirty Jew. I stop for a moment, unbelieving that someone who I had gone to school with for a number of years would choose in the heat of a baseball conflict to identify me by my religion. And so I throw a punch at him. He continues to offer vitriolic language about my religious upbringing. I throw another punch. The two of us end up in the principal's office. One of us goes home early that day. Lo and behold, it turns out to be me. Because calling me a dirty Jew is not as bad as punching somebody. I am reminded of that story, not very often, but certainly in the last uh, month or so, I have been reminded of the power of anti-Semitism to hurt people. When I was a child, they were just words. And though I have experienced in my life anti-Semitic jokes, and I have experienced anti-Semitic uh, media presentations, and I have seen anti-Semitic writing on the walls, and I've even seen my synagogue uh, painted with anti-Semitic graffiti. None of it compares to what has been happening in Europe the last few weeks. We're all aware of what happened in Paris in January, in which people in a uh, kosher supermarket were murdered after the killing of 12 people at the offices of the satirical magazine Charlie Abito. And we're also aware of the attack at a synagogue in Amsterdam recently, and it reminded me of how 
insidious anti-Semitism is and how no matter how far we are from the Crusades and from the hatred that permeated Europe in the Middle Ages and even in the early modern period, and of course, we seem to be 70 years from the time when Soviet troops liberated Auschwitz and saw for the first time the true dimensions of the great crime, maybe the greatest crime since human beings first set foot on earth, anti-Semitism has not died. The murder of Jewish shoppers at a Parisian supermarket sent shivers down the spines of many Jews, not because it was the first such event, but because it has become part of a pattern. In 2014, four Jews were killed at the Jewish Museum in Brussels. In 2012, a rabbi and three young children were murdered at a Jewish school in Toulouse. In 2008, in Mumbai, four terrorists separated themselves from a large group, killing people in the city's cafes and hotels, and made their way to a small Orthodox Jewish center where they murdered its young rabbi and his pregnant wife after torturing and mutilating them. The Sunday Times of London reported after that attack that terrorists were be the terrorists would be told by their handlers in Pakistan that the lives of Jews were worth fifty times those of non Jews. Some politicians around the world tried to deny that what is happening in Europe is anti Semitism. It is, they say, merely a reflection, uh, reaction to the actions of the state of Israel to the continuing conflict with the Palestinians. But the policies of the state of Israel are not made in kosher supermarkets in Paris or in synagogues in Amsterdam or in Jewish cultural institutions in Brussels and Mumbai. The targets in those cities were not Israeli. They were Jewish. According to the Middle East Media Research Institute, an Egyptian cleric speaking in January 2009 on Al-Ramah, a popular religious TV station in Egypt, made the contours of the new hate impeccably clear. If the Jews left Palestine to us, would we start loving them? Of course not. We will never love them. They are enemies, not because they occupied Palestine. They would have had been enemies even if they did not occupy a thing. We must believe that we will fight, defeat, and annihilate them until not a single Jew remains on the face of the earth. You will not survive as long as a single one of us remains. Not everyone would put it so forcefully, but this is the hate in which much of the Middle East and Muslim world has been awash for decades and is now seeping back into Europe. 
For Jews, the catchword never again has become ever again. The scope of the problem is, of course, difficult to gauge precisely, but recent polling is suggestive and alarming. An Anti-Defamation League of the United States study released last May found persistent and pervasive anti-Jewish attitudes after surveying 53,000 adults in 100 territories and countries worldwide. The ADL found that 74% of those surveyed in the Middle East and North Africa held anti-Semitic attitude. But the number was 24% in Western Europe, 34% in Eastern Europe, and 25% in the America. Listen to the 2011 Pew Research Center study, which found that favorable views of Jews were uniformly low and predominantly Muslim regions, and also in Europe. At this juncture in the history of hate, we must remember what anti-Semitism it is. It is not only contingently or even accidentally about Jews. Jews die from it, but they are not its only victims. Today, Christian communities are ravaged, terrorized, and decimated throughout the Middle East, East Saharan Africa and parts of Asia. And scores of Muslims are killed every day by their brothers. With Sunnis arrayed against Shiites and radicals against moderates, the religious against the secular. It strikes me that the hate that begins with the Jews never ends with the Jews. Anti-Semitism has existed for a very long time. One critical moment came around the end of the first century of the Common Era, when the Gospel of John attributed to Jesus these words about the Jews, You belong to your father, the devil. From being the children of Abraham, that piece of Gospel had transformed Jews into the children of Satan. It took a millennium for this text to spark outright and widespread violence against the Jews. That came in 1095, when Pope Urban II delivered his call for the First Crusade. A year later, some crusaders on their ways to liberate the holy city of Jerusalem paused to massacre Jewish communities in North Europe in Cologne and Worms and Mainz. Some suggest almost 100,000 Jews died. Many committed suicide rather than submit to the mob and forcible conversion to Christianity. It was a traumatizing moment for European Jewry, and some would say a portent of worse to come. From the time of the Crusades onward, Jews in Christian Europe began to be seen not as human beings, but as a malevolent force a demonic and destructive power that mysteriously yet actively sought the harm of others. Jews were accused of desecrating the sacramental bread used in communion, poisoning wells and spreading the plague. 
They were held responsible for the Black Death, the epidemic that in the 14th century cost millions of lives. And they, the Jewish community, lived in fear. This period added to the pervasive, repressive vocabulary of the medieval West such terms as book burning, forced conversion, inquisition, auto de fe, expulsion, ghetto, and program. In duration and intensity, it ranks among the most sustained chronicles for enmity in history. What happened to activate a hate that had been incubating for 10 centuries since Christianity emerged from Judaism? The same question could be asked about Nazi Germany. Had someone be asked in the 1890s to identify the epicenters of anti-Semitism in Europe, the answers would probably have been Paris, where Alfred Dreyfus, a military, French military officer of Jewish descent, was framed as a spy and unjustly imprisoned. Vienna, whose bigoted mayor, Karl Luger, became Hitler's inspiration and role model. Why was it Germany that conceived and executed the final solution, an elaborate program with the sole purpose of exterminating Europe's Jews? The answer is the same in both cases. Anti-Semitism becomes deadly only when a culture, a nation, or a faith suffers from a cognitive dissonance so profound that it becomes unbearable. It happens when the way a group sees itself is contradicted by the way it is seen by the world. It is the symptom of an unendurable sense of humiliation. Christianity, which had been transformed by the conversion of the Roman Emperor Constantine in the 4th century, found itself overtaken by Islam by the 11th century. Germany, which had seen itself as the supreme nation in Europe, was defeated in World War I and then punished under the Treaty of Versailles. These humiliations resulted not in introspection, but in a search for foreign culprits, for external enemies who could be blamed and destroyed. The parallel in Islam over the past century was the defeat and dissolution of its one remaining bastion of imperial power, the Ottoman Empire, in 1922. Six years later, radical political Islam was born in Egypt in the form of the Muslim Brotherhood. Hate, hate cultivated for such cultural and political ends, resolves the dissonance between past glory and current ignominy by turning the question, what did we do wrong, into who did this to us? It restores some, self, some measure of self-respect and provides a course of action. In psychiatry, the clinical terms for this process are splitting and projection. It allows people to define themselves as victims even when external circumstances would not identify them as such. The question then becomes victims of whom? There were many possibilities. Between the 15th and 18th century, Europe blamed witches and killed some 40,000 of them. But Europe problems remained. Killing witches wasn't uh, enough. 
For two millennium, another candidate has also been available, the Jews. Despite what some intemperate voices claim, anti-Semitism has no genuine provence within Islam. The historian Bernard Lewis drew a wry distinction. Islam has traditionally had contempt for Jews, he said, not hate. Adding, from contempt, you don't die. From hate, you do. Anti-Semitism entered Islam from the outside in the form of two classic myths imported from Europe. The first was the blood libel, the mad idea that Jews killed Christians to use their blood to make matzah, the unleavened bread eaten during Passover. The idea is absurd, not least because even the tiniest speck of blood in food renders it inedible in Jewish law. The libel was an English invention born in Norwich around 1144 and was unsuccessfully condemned by several popes. It was introduced into the Middle East by Christians in the 19th century, leading to trials of innocent Jews in Lebanon and Egypt, and most famously in Damascus in 1840, far before the creation of the State of Israel. The blood libel is still in circulation. In 1983, the then Syrian defense minister embraced it in a book, The Matzah of Zion. In 1991, the Syrian delegate to the UN Human Rights Commission praised the valuable book called The Matzah of Zion, saying it unmasked the racist elements of Zionism. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, a late uh, 19th century forgery about a supposed global Jewish conspiracy produced by members of the Tsar's secret police and exposed as fiction by the Times of London as early as 1921, became one of Hitler's favorite texts. In Nazi Germany, it became the warrant for genocide. The protocols were introduced into the Middle East in Arabic translation in the 1930s by, among others, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, who spent World War II in Berlin producing Arabic broadcasts for the Nazis. The protocols of the elders of Zion continue to be reprinted and widely read. In 2002, a 41-part dramatic series entitled Horseman Without a Horse which the Anti-Defamation League reported portrays the protocols as historical fact was shown during Ramadan. Tragically, Europe, having largely cured itself of anti-Semitism, now finds it returning carried by the very culture that Europe itself inflicted with the virus. Fortunately, there are many young Muslims who are working for a more tolerant Islam. An organization such as Coexist Foundation and New York University of Many Institute for Multi-Faith Leadership, you will find Jews and Muslims fighting anti-Semitism and Islamophobia together. The real tragedy would be if the West continues to see anti-Semitism 
as strictly a Jewish problem. It isn't. Jews die from it. But it isn't about Jews. I have more to say on this, but for the moment, I want to remind you, my listeners, I do not believe that there is an anti-Semite under every rock. I share with you my thoughts about anti-Semitism because it is seemingly far too easy to take it for granted. It's far too easy as we have seen in recent weeks and months, for the murder of um, cartoonists to mobilize millions of people in marches of sympathy, but the murder of Jews in a kosher supermarket or the murder of a Jew standing guard at a synagogue, and think of the image there, the need to have guards in front of synagogues throughout Europe. That goes by without much of a comment. Recently, politicians in the United States had trouble with the notion of identifying the victims in the kosher supermarket as Jewish as if they had been picked randomly at any supermarket in Paris. To be on guard against the growth of anti-Semitism, to acknowledge that anti-Semitism is not always connected with events in the Middle East between Palestinian and Israelis, is not to... be obsessive about the issue, but rather to acknowledge that just as we work as a community to ensure that faithful adherents of Islam are not endangered by events in the world, so too faithful and public adherents of Judaism must feel free to live in whatever country they choose to. Some of you are aware that after the recent shooting in Amsterdam, the Prime Minister of Israel invited all the Jews of Europe to come and move to Israel. It would be the worst reason for Jews to move to Israel. If Jews in Canada, the United States, or Europe wanted to live in Israel, they should do so. Just as if um, adherents of Islam wish to live in a predominantly Arab country, they should do so. But anti-Semitic acts or anti-Islamic acts are not the motivation for leaving your home country. What we should do when confronted with racism is work to destroy it. I want to end by um, reading to you a passage in Deuteronomy, which has momentous modern-day implications. Moses, nearing the end of his life, is addressing the next generation of Israelites and the people who will cross the Jordan River and enter the Promised Land. 
He says to them at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, do not hate an Egyptian, he tells them, for you are a stranger in the land. This is one of the most counterintuitive verses in the Bible. The Egyptians had enslaved the Israelites and planned a slow genocide against them. Was this not a reason to hate them? But Moses' words are among history's wisest political insights. If the Israelites had continued to hate their erstwhile persecutors, Moses might have succeeded in leading them out of Egypt, but he would have failed in taking Egypt out of them. The Israelites would still have been slaves to their memories and resentments, their sense of humiliation, slaves in short to the past. To be free, you have to let go of hate. You have to stop seeing yourself as a victim or else you will succeed only in making more victims. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are religions of love, not hate. All of us, Jews, Christians, Muslims, brothers and sisters in Abraham's family, must find a way, must find a road in which we choose love and not hate and in which we stand up and rail against anti-Semitism, in which we stand up and rail against Islamophobia, in which we protest the death and annihilation of Christians, for us not to join together is to deny our common religious faith and to deny our common values. This is Rabbi Stephen Garten for Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, wishing you good morning and especially wishing you shalom. Have a good day.